0: All right, if you have your Bibles today, and I hope you do, take them and open to Matthew chapter 25, please. Matthew chapter 25. I, uh, I, I don't know how you feel about the platform. Um, uh, it's driving me crazy. I, I don't like the clutter. Uh, and yet, like I said earlier, there's a visual representation here. There's a message that this, that we hope this drives home, that uh, will convey what perhaps God would say to us throughout the course of this sermon series. We're uh, we're going to be looking at the uh, the single most thing that seems to clutter the lives of believers, so that we lose sight of who God is and what he wants to do in our life and and how he hopes to accomplish that. I say that this is the the single greatest thing because I'm taking my cues from Jesus who spoke more on this topic than he spoke on the topic of heaven, than he spoke more on this topic than he spoke on the topic of hell. He even said more about this than he said about love. Love. As a matter of fact, in 11 of his 39 parables, parables, these stories that Jesus told to make a point, 11 of them, that's more than a quarter focused on this one topic. And that's the topic of money and material possessions. And too many times what we find is that uh, this idea of money and the stuff that we have, it begins to clutter our life and it begins to make us lose sight of what God wants to do in us and through us. And so I don't know how you're feeling right now when when I say money. If you're a guest today, I just, I feel compelled to say this. We don't just talk about money all the time. Um, we're going to talk about it for a few weeks here in this series, uh, but then I won't preach on it for a long time. We're not just interested in getting your money. I know that's a common misperception about churches. That's, that's not at all what this is about. We're doing this series because um, we believe that God wants your heart. And for most of us, the pathway to our heart leads through our wallet. Um, but we're not most interested in you giving us your money. We're most inter- interested in you giving Christ your heart. So I don't know how you feel when when you think about money or when you think about your own financial issue, but I kind of wonder if you were to visualize yourself, would you see yourself in the midst of clutter like this saying, I feel trapped. Like I don't know what to do. I don't know where to turn. I, I don't know who to ask for help. Um, maybe, maybe you would be embarrassed because there's, there's, there's thoughts or practices or, or feelings in your own life about money. And, and you think if somebody saw this, if they saw this mess, they'd think less of me. I, I, don't know, I don't know where you're at. I don't know as we talk about personal finances, what that means. But I do know that when our life is this cluttered, when there's this much stuff, Cluttering our hearts, it impacts our ability to work, to rest, sometimes even to think clearly, to make good decisions, but most importantly, to put Christ at first place. And that's what we want to do. So what we're going to do today is um, we're going to see if we can start to make space in our life around this issue of money and stuff by opening God's Word. And and today we're going to see what Jesus says about money in one of those parables I was talking about earlier. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 25 today. Matthew 25, starting at verse 14. We're coming in kind of on the middle of a conversation. And so you'll see as we begin to read, it starts with, again, it... And we need to know what the it is. So the middle of of the conversation that we're coming in on, Jesus is kind of talking about the uh, the end of days. What will it be like when uh, time has come to an end, when, uh, you know, when the heavens are open, when God reveals himself, when we stand before God for judgment. This, this Matthew 25 is kind of all about the end of days. So we're going to start reading in verse 14, keeping in mind that we came in on the middle of a conversation about the end of days. Again, it, the end of days, will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one, he gave five talents of money, to another, two talents, and to another, one talent, each according to his ability. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not real familiar with this denomination of talent. Um, It doesn't sound like anything I've used before. So let's break that down real quick so we can get a scope for what we're talking about here. Matthew uses two different words here. He talks about money, uh, and property, but the, the word money that he uses here specifically refers to silver money, silver that would be used to, to buy and purchase and trade. Um, and then he talks about talents, which is really only a measurement of weight, okay? So, so let's think about that. Um, the, the talent was a measurement of weight between 60 and 80 pounds, So as we take that in modern day terms and think through what we just read, that means that one man received about 75 pounds of silver. One man received about 150 pounds of silver. And the other man received about 375 pounds of silver. Now, most of us are going, yeah, you can give me 375 pounds of silver. I'd be okay with that. That's a pretty decent amount of money, even by our measurements. Uh, as we would measure it today, that's roughly $5,000 a talent. Okay, so you can kind of see this isn't like chump change. He's, the, the master isn't giving like a week's allowance to these men. As a matter of fact, if you go back to Jesus's day, what he gives these men, um, one talent, uh, what he would give to the one talent guy, and then you can multiply it from there, but one talent was worth about 20 years of wages for a day laborer. So even the guy who got the least got a ton of money. And then, of course, it scales up from there. So verse 16, The man who had received the five talents went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. So also the one with the two talents gained two more. But the man who had received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. Which sounds kind of silly, right? Like, why would you do that? Well, actually, Jewish teachers taught that if someone entrusted money to you, the most responsible thing you could do, believe it or not, was to bury it in the ground. The idea was that that's where it was Safest, And so you had proven yourself trustworthy by burying it in the ground. So there's at least one school of thought. As Jesus tells this parable, there's probably some in the the audience are going, yeah, he did the right thing. Let's see what Jesus says about it. Verse 19. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received the five talents brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five talents. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful. If you're reading in your text, go ahead and circle that word faithful. This is important. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful. There it is again. Circle that. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man with two talents also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two talents. See, I've gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful. Let's circle that again. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful. Circle that in your text with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received the one talent came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid. And right there with those few words, we get a glimpse into this man, some of this man's clutter around money and stuff, some of the, some of the things running in the background of his life, fear. Fear. You see, the first two servants were motivated by pleasing their master. This guy said, I was afraid of you. I did not want to make you unhappy. I didn't want to displease you. So I went out and I hid your talent in the ground. See, here's what belongs to you. Verse 26, his master replied, you wicked, lazy Servant. And so maybe here's some more of this man's clutter. He's lacking ambition and and clear thought. The, The problem wasn't that he'd done something against his master. Again, what he did by their measures was wise. The problem for the master was that this guy hadn't done anything for his master. Verse 26 So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed? Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. And then the master turns and says, take the talent from him and give it to the one who has 10 talents. For everyone who has will be given more and, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So, what I want to suggest this morning is that there's three, um, you know, space clearing, decluttering truths that this passage teaches us, so that we can make some space in our own life around this issue of money and stuff. Number one, everything I have belongs to God. Everything I have belongs to God. You'll notice that the, the parable, Jesus starts intentionally with the master entrusting his property to his servants. And I think Jesus starts intentionally that way because he wants us to understand that what we have has been entrusted to us by God. What we have. We're the servants in the parable, mind you. God is the master. What we have has been entrusted to us by God. Now that's pretty significant. Think of it like this. When someone entrusts something to you, they do that because they trust you. And in this parable, the master knew the the abilities, the capacities that each of the servants had and entrusted to them what was his based on how he knew them and and what he knew they could be faithful with and what he knew that they could do. Now, again, if we're the servants and God's the master, that means that um, Jesus is trying to help us understand that God looks at us the same way. He's entrusted to us what belongs to him based on what he believes, what he knows, we could handle in a way that would be faithful and that would glorify him. So everything that we have, not just our money and our stuff, but everything that we would call ours on this earth came from God. Now, if that's the first time you've thought about that, that can be hard to wrestle with. I mean, so for example, I'll just personalize it. It would be hard for me to think through this truth that everything I have came from God because I am telling you, I busted my hump in college. I worked part-time as a youth pastor, I was double majoring and double minoring. Uh, I received academic credits when it was, all, or, you know, honors when it was all said and done. I was the head of the Christian Ministry Association on campus. Uh, I was a resident assistant in the, in the, the freshman dorm for uh, uh, two of my four years. Um, I worked hard. And I didn't stop when I got out of college. I continued to work hard as a youth pastor, an associate pastor, a senior pastor, as an adjunct professor, as an e-professor for second career pastors. Uh, um, I, I worked through two graduate programs. Um, you know, I, I suppose we could go on and on and, and, and that doesn't include like being a, a husband and a father and, and the side hustles that, I, that I've had to do to make the, the ends meet at the end of the month. How can you tell me that what I have isn't mine. But you know, truthfully, I didn't chose to be born as the oldest of four boys to parents with strong work ethic. I didn't chose to be born, or I should say to grow up in the 80s in the middle of an economic boom in the United States. I didn't show, choose to um, to be born white and to experience all the privilege that comes with that. I didn't choose to have the intellect I have. I didn't choose to have the you know the the tenacious personality I have, the drive. I didn't choose a lot of these things. That's just the way it is. It's what God has entrusted. And I think all of us, if we begin to think about it like that, if we begin to realize that what we do have, not just money and stuff, but the things we've accomplished, the the family we have, the relationships we have, the the status we've achieved, the accomplishments that, uh, that we've seen happen, if we begin to realize that very little of it originates actually in us, that we did little to affect what set us up for those things, then we begin to understand, I believe we begin to understand this truth that that everything belongs to God and he's entrusted it to us. It's not because of me. It's because of him. So if I can remove enough heart clutter in my life to embrace this truth that everything I have has been entrusted to me by God, that I'm taking my first step towards dealing with money and stuff in the way that God would desire, in a way that pleases him. Of course, if, if I'm to be honest, even in a room this size, there are certainly people who would be saying, um, I don't know that God's entrusted me with quite enough. I'm not so sure that it's fair what God's entrusted me to deal with. Now, that's fair. It takes a lot of courage to say that. And Jesus didn't dodge that bullet either. As a matter of fact, in Matthew 6, we're going to put this on the screen here. In Matthew 6, here's what Jesus said. So don't worry about these things saying, what are we going to eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers, but your heavenly father already knows all of your needs. Read this last verse with me, please. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, And he will give you everything you need. So as we live into this idea that everything we have has been entrusted to us by God, we can begin to make some space and and create some margin so that we can live in gratitude for what we do have. Not that we can uh, live ungratefully for what we don't have, wishing God had given us more. So we can play the comparison game between what I have and what someone else have and what I hope to have someday, but we can live into the reality that everything I have I have, because God trusts me, because He believes that I can do something with this that will glorify Him. It's not really my stuff. I'm really just a manager. I'm just a steward of something that God has. Entrusted to me. So the first decluttering truth is that everything I have has come from God. And the second decluttering truth we we find in this passage says that God wants me to be a good manager. God wants me to be a good manager. And so we see this in the parable, right? The master entrusts some of what is his to his servants, and then he goes on a trip. And the next thing we know, he's, his trip is over and he's coming back and he's saying, bring the, the servants before me. I want to settle up with them. I want to find out what they did with what I entrusted to them. So again, Jesus is giving us some cues here. For all of us, there will come a day when God wants to settle up with us. When we stand before him and he asks us, what did you do with what I entrusted to your care? How did you steward? How did you manage? How did you use for my glory what I gave you? This isn't just a matter of whether or not you're good with money. This isn't an accounting issue. It's not like those who know the secrets of hedge funds are going to excel in that conversation with Jesus. It's not about any of that. Becoming a good manager of what God has entrusted to you requires asking a key question. And we're going to put that on the screen. Am I living to please God or am I living to avoid displeasing Him? Is my life about making God happy? Or am I more concerned that I'm going to take a wrong step and he's going to be upset with me? Is my goal to see almighty God smile? Or do I walk around praying that the almighty smiter isn't going to smite me? You get what I'm saying? There's a difference in that. There's a difference in living to please versus living so that you don't displease. We, uh, we, we saw earlier the two servants, the first two servants in the parable, they lived to please their master. They went out and they took what he had entrusted to them and they worked hard to do something with it that would make him happy. The third servant, however, however was, was just afraid that his master wouldn't be happy. And so he played it safe. He did in their culture what was the safe thing to do. He buried it in the ground. It wasn't technically wrong. But when his master sees what he did, he says, no, you did the wrong thing. And he did it because he was afraid. He was living to avoid displeasing his master because he was afraid. Fear of judgment made him hesitate. Fear of failure caused him to, to play it safe. Fear of loss made him hesitate to risk. Fear of losing everything made him afraid of losing anything. Now, most of us, if I don't miss my guess, have dealt with fears like this at one time or another, probably around money and stuff, but if not, certainly in other areas of life. You know, one key to getting rid of fear is to bring it into the light. When I was a kid, my dad used to go to work. He worked in South Bend. We lived in Elkhart. He used to, to leave for work at Odark dark 30. And uh, most of the mornings, it was so early that none of us were out of bed yet. But there was one particular morning I remember where mom got up with him uh, to see him off to work. This was a Saturday. And there were two things that were happening on this Saturday. The first one was that after work, dad was gonna head south to Frankfurt, Indiana to visit his oldest brother, who at the time was dying of cancer. And the second thing was that as soon as the sun was up and mom was ready, she was going to run a yard sale, uh, you know, at at our home. Now, we had started the yard sale the night before on Friday, and and at the end of the day on Friday when mom was done running the yard sale, um, you know, we just kind of piled all the stuff from the yard onto our front porch. And, you know, I mean, it looked a lot like this, only with less drama-like stuff. Uh, i mean we had we had you know tables of toys and racks of clothes we even had clothes hanging uh, we had a porch swing with chains on it We had you know clothes hanging in the in the links of that uh that chain we had uh, anywhere there was an open space, it wasn't open. We had piled everything onto the porch. Well, this particular Saturday, mom walks dad to the door to say, you know, send him off to work and gives him a kiss or whatever. I, I don't know, I wasn't awake. And, uh, and, and, and as I've heard the story, dad walked out the door to turn left to walk towards the driveway like he would do. And uh, as he turned left, in his right peripheral vision, he saw, uh, he saw something move. He saw the clothes that were hanging down at the end of the porch move. And he saw movement under the clothes. Now, my dad, like I said, was going to visit his brother, who was a former police officer and an amateur gun nut. So um, dad had his Smith & Wesson strapped to his shoulder. And as soon as he saw that movement, faster than you could imagine, he had his Smith & Wesson out, pointing chest height at the shirts, and he said, come out now. There was no movement on the porch Except my dad's chest was heaving because fear had a, dumped a bunch of adrenaline to his system and he was trying to control it. But other than my dad breathing, having no movement. So he said it again come out now or I'll shoot. Well, about this time, my mom looks down to the end of the porch and she begins to realize that the legs that she sees under the clothes look kind of familiar whoever this was had apparently taken one of dad's pair of jeans off of one of the tables and put them on. Not only that, but they were wearing his work boots too. The thing was dad only had one pair of work boots. That's when it dawned on mom that we were selling a mirror and she had put it at that end of the porch. So realizing quickly what was happening, mom flipped on the porch light so that dad could see what was really going on. And, and thankfully, once light exposed what was really happening, the shirts weren't shot to sh- shreds. You know, this is what happens when we bring fear into the light when we're willing to talk about it, when we're willing to say where we're at, to acknowledge that that something has got us spooked, when we bring fear into the light, it becomes less scary. So what I'm gonna do today uh, for for the next moment is I'm gonna put some statements on the screen and I'm gonna read them to you and I invite you to think about, is there one of these statements that kind of defines where I'm at? I need financial assistance to get by. I'm struggling to keep up with day-to-day expenses. I'm able to make ends meet. I'm able to make ends meet and I have some left over or I have more than I need for myself and my family. Having the courage to acknowledge where we are means that we know, we begin to understand what steps we need to take to get where God wants us to be. When we understand where we 're at, then we can put some plans and some goals together so that we can live in a way that's not fearful, but that understands that God has entrusted something to us because he believes that we can deal with it and so if we 're struggling with fear, because maybe one of the you know maybe one of the first couple statements is what applies to our life, if we 're struggling with fear, we can um, begin to Understand that God's desire is that we would live to please him. That he trusts us with what he's given us. It, it allows us to begin to create space, to make space, and, 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 and to become right-headed about some of the challenges around money and stuff in our own lives. We, we perhaps come to the point where we say, you know what, I just need to ask family or friends or my church small group for some help. It's okay if I do that. That's what family and friends and church small groups are for, to help us when we get stuck, to, uh, to help us through the hard times. When we're not fearful about what people or even about what God is going to say about that, then we can do the right thing. Of course, then there's some of us on the other end of the scale who would say, I have more than I need for myself and my family, and we've got our own issues to deal with. And um, we've got our own question. How do I keep my money and my stuff from having power over me? Have I, have I earned this in a way that pleases God? Have I come by my financial gain in an honorable way? Am I living generously with what God has entrusted to me? Regardless of where we are this morning, knowing where we are is the first step to knowing where God wants us to be. And actually, Jesus tells us in the parable where God wants us to be. What does the master applaud in this passage? What does he applaud in this passage, the master? I had you circle it like a half dozen times. Faithfulness. It's easy to think that the master was most concerned with more money. But notice the master didn't say, well done, financially savvy servant. You multiplied what I gave you. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. It was the good faith effort with which the master was pleased. Both servants, both of the, the good servants, those who brought back a return, those who were Faithful weren't rewarded based on the percentage of the return they offered to their master. They were rewarded because they were faithful with what the master had entrusted to them. Their role wasn't to ask why they got more or less than somebody else. Their responsibility wasn't to risk it haphazardly on some kind of huge return for their master. Their reward came because they were faithful. Because they used what their master had given them in a way that pleased him. And because they just wanted to give him more when the time came to settle up. So the bottom line here is it doesn't matter so much what you have. God knows that because he entrusted it to you. It doesn't matter so much what you have. What matters is what you do with what you have. So when we start to understand that everything is God's and that that we're just managers, then it becomes very clear that every financial decision, every decision about money and stuff, is actually a spiritual decision. It's communicating what's in my heart towards my master, towards God. Every financial decision is a powerful opportunity to express what I think and and what I believe about God and the condition of my relationship with Jesus Christ. How we manage our resources speaks volumes about whether we've put our trust in God or if we're putting our trust in things to experience the happiness and the satisfaction that we all want, which leads us to our third truth from this passage. God will reward good managers. God will reward good managers. So the master returns from his trip. He sees that two-thirds of his servants have been faithful. They've uh, they've done well with what he entrusted to them, regardless of the amount. And two of the servants experienced something that may be kind of like this clip that we're going to watch together. But can you imagine the day when you stand before God? and the all-out celebration when the master says to you, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been trustworthy with some, and so I'm going to give you more. Come and share in your master's happiness. I mean, that's where we all want to end up, where everyone from the smallest mouse to the the cruelest judge is scoring as perfect and, and saying we did well. But we don't get there if our heart and our mind is cluttered around this idea of money. We don't experience the Father's reward if we don't have space enough to understand where we need to be. And the way to make space around money is to start by acknowledging that everything I have has come from God. He's given it to me because he trusts me. And, 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 and then we need to work to be good managers, to, to bring our fear into the light, to live in a way that, that isn't about displeasing God or avoiding displeasing God, but to live in a way that is about doing everything we can to be faithful so that God will be pleased, so that he'll be glorified with what we do With what he's given us. When we can do that, then we'll begin to make space. And what we have, whether it's great or little by our own measure, we can use to glorify God. We can use to do what he wants us to do with it. Then we'll find some breathing room. And even if we don't suddenly find more money, When we aren't afraid of facing where we're at and facing our finances, it'll take up less room in our lives. And so all the space that used to be taken up by fear and confusion will create opportunity for other parts of our life to flourish. Then we can be grateful. Then we can see God more as our provider. Then we can be good stewards. So this is the journey we're setting out on, the cor- on over the course of the next few weeks. How do we make space? How do we declutter our lives so that we can live faithfully with what God has entrusted to us? I don't know where you're at with that, um, but I believe that for each of us, there can be great benefits from doing, us, from doing this. For some of us, it's going to mean that we're going to need to reprioritize our money and our possessions. We're going to need to take it off the throne of our heart and life so that Jesus can sit there. For some of us, it's going to mean that we're going to have to start thinking more intentionally about what we're going to do with our next paycheck so that a month or six months or a year down the road, we're not you know, living in fear of how we're going to provide and put food on the table and, and pay the bills. But for all of us, If we'll listen to the Spirit's voice, I believe it means we'll continue to grow in our relationship with Christ and continue to learn what it means to belong to Jesus, to become like Jesus and to be sent by Jesus. I hope you'll plan to make it back. Maybe you'll come in in the next few weeks and you'll find the platform is cleared or maybe it'll be more cluttered. We'll see. But my hope is that our hearts gain space around this issue of money and stuff. Will you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, Father, we thank you that when you walked among us as, as Jesus, when you took on flesh, and when you taught us, that you didn't shy away from money, that in your wisdom, you acknowledged that this was uh, a key issue for everyone. And so you talked about it a lot Father, would you help us as we uh, study what your word says about our money and our stuff? Would you help us to grow in our faithfulness to you? Would you help us to better live into the reality that you are the owner of everything we have, that, that you've entrusted it to us, that you want us to manage it well? Would you help us to understand what it means to be good and faithful managers or stewards of what you've given us. And Father, as we leave this place today, would you help us to live with a spirit of gratitude, thanking you for that which you have entrusted to us, thanking thanking you for uh, the privilege, the honor of using what you've given us for your glory And Father, would you you cast out fear? Your love, your spirit, would you shine light on the places of our heart where we're confused or misled or dishonest or just plain old afraid to deal with the clutter around our money and our stuff? Father, we love you and we thank you for the opportunity we have to be together and to worship and to learn from your word. Amen.